You're listening to TIP. There's a quote, I think, that's attributed to Monish Prabhai that goes along the lines of, I don't want to hear what you think. I want to know what's in your portfolio. Show me your portfolio. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and hear about your own portfolio and how you've got it structured. Hey guys, in today's episode, I had the good fortune of sitting down and talking with Clay Fink, host of We Study Billionaires at TIP. We did a deep dive into what Clay has learned since becoming a host at TIP, what his biggest takeaways from his favorite interviews have been, who his favorite investors are, how he structures his own portfolio and handles volatility, why the joys of compounding is an important book to him, and a whole lot more. Clay is a value investor who's been inspired by Chris Mayer, Nick Sleep, and Charlie Munger. He's the host of We Study Billionaires, as I mentioned, and also helps run TIP's Mastermind Community, an initiative that he kickstarted in 2023. I've been wanting to get Clay on the show for quite a while, hear about his own portfolio, hear about how he's been influenced by the interviews that he's done, and this was a lot of fun for me. And so, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with Clay Fink. Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me in today's studio is Mr. Clay Fink. Clay, welcome to the show. Patrick, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am really happy to have you on. I was sharing with you before we hit record that I was a big fan of yours on Twitter before you even joined TIP and got a lot of value out of your posts. Just seemed like we had a very similar mindset and philosophy about things. So kind of ironic, we both ended up at TIP. But I wanted to start off just talking a little bit about your journey into value investing and wanting to know like, when did money, finance, investing just come online for you as an interest? So growing up, I'd say I had an amazing family, fantastic upbringing. I really wasn't ever taught about money or investing growing up. I remember one of my teachers in school mentioned the penny doubling for 30 days example and you know, to help illustrate the power of compounding. But I don't think that message really got across in that you know, this is a way you can invest or this is a way you can actually grow your money, grow your wealth. So I do recall that, but I don't really recall anything ever growing up, you know, having investors around me or people talk about it. Somehow I happened to come across a Buffett biography when I was age 18. And that's when it started to click for me where this guy just sits in his office every day and is making a bunch of money doing it somehow. <laughs> so that's when I kind of got the interest in investing. In college, I kind of went down like the personal development sort of path, like get Robert Kiyosaki's book, get the compound, I think it was the compound effect and like the power of habit books like that, Atomic Habits and all those sorts of books. And then one day I must have just Googled investing podcasts and then come across TIP's content. And uh, that was kind of a tool I added to my toolkit of you know commutes, just turn on the podcast, make my commutes more productive and just utilize my time better. You know, I checked out obviously a bunch of investing podcasts, but it, I just really enjoyed learning from Preston and Stig because they just seemed to make investing much more approachable, seemed to make a ton of sense to me. And even if I didn't end up buying a lot of the stocks they talked about, I enjoyed just learning about their thought process of how they thought about things, 
Uh, what do they look for? What's the red flags they look for? So, you know, there's so much nuance in investing. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's just something uh, people really enjoy with TIP's content and what we do. And I'd say my learning journey really uh, went to hyperdrive when I joined TIP because I was just forced to learn if I was going to be. Uh, recording with these great guests, I better know what the heck I'm talking about. And yeah, over time, we've just found a strategy that I feel like has worked for me, makes a lot of sense to me. Prior to that, I was uh, you know, mainly interested in just index funds and safer type investments that I knew I could sleep well at night owning. That's cool. So you're 18, you're in college at this point, and it's a Warren Buffett book. Do you remember which one it was that you were reading at that time? The Snowball. Yeah, that's a fantastic book. That's one that's I remember reading it too. I forget when it whenever it came out, maybe 2014 or 15. I can't remember, but it's a page turner. It's like something you you can't put down. And funny enough, I just now sort of realized this. My first two episodes on We Study Billionaires, I did a deep dive on the snowball by Alex Schroeder. So uh kind of came full circle when I joined We Study Billionaires. So you're 18, you're starting this, you know, reading Buffett, you're doing some self-development. What did you study and what just kind of how did your career progress from like, you know, 18 onwards? I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living, but I knew that I was pretty good at math or at least above average. And uh, the University of Nebraska has a it's an actuarial science program or for shorthand, just people just say actuary program. And essentially actuaries are like the math brains behind insurance companies. And the interesting thing about insurance companies is they sell products to people that they have no idea how much it's going to cost them. When Coca-Cola sells you a can of Coke, they know how much it costs them to produce that can of Coke. But when you buy an auto insurance policy from Geico, Geico has no idea how much it's going to cost them to sell you that policy. And you know, January 1st, you buy it over the year. You don't know if you're going to get in a car accident, if you're going to have these major expenses. So that's one of the interesting things about the insurance field is how the math sort of plays into this. And I thought that would suit me well. I also thought I'd be pretty interested in business, just learning about businesses. And there was plenty of finance classes within that curriculum. So I went to University of Nebraska for four years. Didn't really know if I wanted to do that over the long run. And one of the things I liked about it is it's a pretty dang good career with the level of education you need to get. So you get your undergrad and then you take these exams after. It's not like you need to go and do like, Four years of grad school, like many other great fields, or go and you know ten plus years of school to go and become a doctor. Like I feel like it's so hard to pivot from something like that, and I feel like I didn't really want to corner myself in a field and the sunk cost of I think so many people find themselves in. So I'm really happy I sort of went that direction where I gave myself the optionality. Hey, if this does this doesn't work out, if I want to go become a podcast host, or whatever, then uh, we can make it work. So I was an actuary for four years. I worked at a smaller consulting company in Omaha for a few years. And then I switched jobs, moved back to Lincoln, where I'm based now and worked for an insurance company. And I just decided that that field and just kind of the corporate life didn't really suit my personality or what I wanted to do long term. And then I developed this interest on the side of TIP stuff, learning all about investing. And I thought the investing field was something I would enjoy doing. It was uh, just difficult to figure out what exactly that was. And one of the problems I think I found was just the incentive structure within so many jobs is just like 
not well aligned. For example, uh, a lot of these uh, investment advisor positions, you know, incentivize you to sell products rather than doing what's in the best interest of the client. So that's one part I found sort of difficult to navigate. Then eventually transitioned to join TIP and just found the right opportunity that I felt might work. And it was in the investment industry. And then uh, here we are. So I want to take a step back. So you, you graduate, you're in actuarial science, you've got a good starting salary, you're starting to be able to invest. I, I imagine in college, you didn't have a whole lot to invest, even though you, you might have been studying some of the principles. At that point, when you started to have a little bit of income and, and you know money to save, what were some of your first steps? Like, were you, were you an index fund investor? Were you picking your own stocks at that point? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, overall, generally index funds. Uh, one of the m- most useful books, I think, people that are just sort of getting into investing or wrapping their minds around why it's important is uh, J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. Uh, it's a fantastic book. And it just explains why index funds work and why like most people should be buying index funds. And I completely agree with that advice. But um, there's so many people out there that uh, need to scratch their investing itch and they just get into the value investing space and they get into what TIP talks about and you just really can't get enough of it. And I felt like I was that kind of person where I just loved studying businesses. I loved taking a more active approach, knowing that you know, I might underperform if I don't make the right investment decisions or, and I just kind of accepted that. And yeah, as you mentioned, not a lot of money invested in college. And then after college, definitely started earning a pretty decent salary and then saving money. And then, yeah, a lot of that went to index funds. And then I just allocated a smaller portion of my portfolio to individual stocks, you know, kind of to scratch that investing itch. And I think the biggest thing was just using them as, as learning experiences, you know, obviously make money, lose money on some. And, uh, you know, one of my early lessons was I just happened to buy Apple when I was in college. And that, that investment ended up working really, really well. But then there's another investment that essentially went to zero. And then I realized from that that sort of experience, my winners far outweighed my losers, where I like I allocated like a similar position size to both of them. And then Apple goes up four or five X and then the other one goes to zero. So it doesn't didn't really matter. Still end up with a really fine result. That's actually a point got him made made on our show where compounding is convex to the upside and concave to the downside, meaning that over time the gains can far outweigh the losses, assuming that you pick up some really great companies. So yeah, I obviously made a lot of mistakes along the way. And it's so funny that early on when you're just starting out, you're like, don't really know what you're doing. Those experiences really teach you a lot and uh, really carry with you for the rest of your life. So you're four or five years as an actuary, right? At what point did you start getting this itch of like, I want to explore something else. I don't think this is the right career path for me. I want to hear about just the that transition from working as an actuary to starting to have a thought process of exploring other options and then just how TIP came about. So I mentioned my first job was a consulting role and that was with a smaller company. And what I liked about that was it being a smaller company. So I could work on a wide variety of projects. I kind of have some flexibility on what I'm going to work on. In a smaller company, your ability to move up is really enhanced. Whereas with a corporate job, you're kind of stuck in your role. You do what you're told and you only move up after a certain number of years or the right opportunity comes up. So after that first job, I transferred to an insurance role. Um, it wasn't a massive company, but it was still like kind of your traditional corporate 
job. And yeah, ever since I transitioned there, that was fall of 2020. I realized like, yeah, I need to try and find something else. But it's not like it was the end of the world. Like I was making a great salary. I'd got my uh, associate designation for that field, which, you know, gave me a pretty decent pay bump. I mean, like I was just enjoying listening to like TIP stuff. And I remember I was on vacation actually with my family. We were down at the Lake the Ozarks and I got an email from Robert Leonard. Apparently, I was on TIP's email list, and Robert said that, uh, you know, he just sent an email out to the whole list saying, Hey, we're hiring for our millennial investing show. If you want to work from home, set your own schedule, be a podcast host with TIP, you can apply here. And since I was on vacation, I didn't really think too much about it. I was like, Yeah, I can never be a podcast host. Like, if, if you know any actuaries, you know that they're like the most introverted people you'll ever meet. Some of them can be pretty socially awkward. But one of my friends that also listened to TIP, he texted me. He's like, you should apply for that role. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I should. So I threw my hat in the ring thinking there's no way I'm going to be getting this, this job. Like there's surely they're going to find someone that's plenty more qualified than me. Just someone, you know, no experience podcasting, no experience in the investment arena. It turns out over a hundred people applied and then I made it to like the final five. That's when uh, we had a call with Stig. And apparently Robert and Stig both said I was uh, the right fit for the job. So I think a lot of it was they saw how big of a fan of TIP I was. And like that's kind of the most important thing is like understanding what TIP is all about. And it's not so much about, you know, knowing everything about value investing and what makes a great investment. Like a lot of that stuff is learnable, but like the soft skills and the the culture fit is a thing that uh, you really can't fix. You know, you know, you really need to get it right from the beginning. That's awesome. I love hearing that story. Similar experience for me, just, you know, hearing that they were advertising for a newsletter position. I thought the same thing. I'm like, ah, I doubt I'll get this, but I'm going to apply because I love TIP and we'll see how it goes. And it's just like you said, it's a small company. So there's lots of room for development and improvement and, and things like that, different movements within the company. I wanted to hear how your just your learning and growth has been affected since joining TIP. Like, What has changed for you as a person since joining uh, and becoming a host of First Millennial Investing and now We Study Billionaires? Joining TIP has really changed everything for me. I'm just learning new things all the time, you know, definitely every week. One of your points to me earlier before we hit record is the shiny object syndrome. I've learned to say no to things rather quickly. You know, my email inbox is just full of people wanting to be on the show or people uh, sharing stock ideas and whatnot. And, you know, finding an investment style that fits my skill set and my temperament has been really helpful. And it just, you know, helps me be more efficient and scanning through all these ideas. And I think one of the biggest things uh, being at TIP is just help me be more humble. There's a lot of smart people out there with a lot of different ideas and different thoughts on where the world is sort of heading. And it's sort of led me to this realization that things are changing all the time. We can't know everything. So what's going well now might go really poorly, really quickly. And even if you think you know what will happen in the future, I think it's important to be humble enough to know that surprises happen all the time. And uh, it's another thing I've realized after reading Morgan Housel's recent book. And when you think about it, the role you and I are in, Patrick, is like we get paid to learn, just learn from people, learn from all these books and such. And it just gives me an, an immense amount of gratitude too to just be in this type of position where, you know, I get to wake up and just learn and 
get to meet amazing people and the community I help run and just the learning never ends. And, you know, when we're all kind of following the footsteps of like Buffett and Munger and, you know, they're learning machines. And as they say, the learning really never ends. So it's a huge gift. I, I totally agree. It's uh, sometimes I pinch myself that I get to do this and talk to the people that we get to talk to. I wanted to hear a little bit about like when you decided to leave your career, what was the feedback from some of your coworkers when you told them what you were going to be doing? Yeah, the feedback from just people in general was pretty mixed. Some people were very skeptical, you know, thinking you could make any money at all hosting a podcast or thinking it would go well, given you have zero podcast experience. More generally, a lot of people just don't listen to podcasts, which is funny enough, like you and I, the people that are in our circles listen to podcasts all the time. So it's kind of these two different worlds where people are like, oh my gosh, this is like an amazing opportunity. Those who know what TIP is and then other people are like, what the heck are you doing? Leaving this like safe job, got all these benefits, you know, you're on a great trajectory. Why would you, you know, let that go? So, uh, you know, it sort of made me realize like what's most important to me, what do I value rather than what does like other people value or what do other people want to see in me or what do they want me to achieve? So it's uh, been this process of like figuring out what it is that I want. You know, at the end of the day, it's like uh, deciding what's most important to me. So yeah, the feedback was definitely mixed. You know, looking back, I really appreciate those, the people that like really supported me because it really was a difficult decision just to like make the jump on my own, but also like overcome some of the feedback that I did receive from people. Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of forget about that where they might be listening to the show and be like, oh, Clay's got the best job in the world, like reading all these books, talking with all these people. But uh, making that jump definitely was pretty difficult. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? 
What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I mentioned that I you know, knew about you before you started at TIP through Twitter, and you were posting a lot of great content. At what point did you realize that Twitter was this tool that is super powerful and an incredible learning place like to be a learning machine? I wanted to just hear about that, like how your Twitter philosophy came to be. Yeah, I think I sort of came to a similar realization to Kyle, who I, I listened to your episode with him just recently here on Millennial Investing. And Kyle had mentioned that the best way to learn something is to write about it and teach that subject to others. So when COVID hit, I just realized that I had all this time on my hands and I was like, okay, what am I going to do with all this time? Like, it was like a couple of weeks I started playing video games and it's like, I can't just keep doing this. So, what I did was I purchased a course on, I don't know if it's like a $100 course on just like how to grow a Twitter following. So, I purchased that and just, I just started, you know, creating content on Twitter and just figure out ways to learn things and start sharing them with others. And really, it was just my sort of way to spend all this time during COVID. And looking back, you know, I wish I would have spent more time doing things like reading all these books that I've now discovered since joining TIP instead of communicating with all these different accounts on Twitter. But, uh, you know, life's a learning journey and you live and you learn, I guess. So when you first started off with millennial investing, you've had a ton of great guests that I've listened to and, and you've done a lot of different kinds of podcasts. You've done series and things like that. But I wanted to hear a little about like some of the guests that you've had on Millennial Investing or We Study Billionaires that have really been impactful for you and just some of the takeaways that uh, you've garnered from them. Yeah, the We Study Billionaires guests are definitely more top of mind. But Millennial Investing, one of the guests I really enjoyed bringing on was Adam Ziesel. His book, Where the Money Is, I thought was great. It was kind of like a modern day version of some of these value investing books that are classics like the the intelligent investor it's kind of modern day version of uh appreciating things like business quality and such and his template to valuing technology companies in today's era you know he uses the prime example is amazon and how everyone just said they were too expensive yet the stock goes up 100x or whatever <laughs> from where they said it was way too expensive but uh, adam cecil is one of my favorite guests on millennial investing i remember that one i actually did a write up in the newsletter after you had interviewed him kind of highlighting some of the ideas that that he had touched on it was a good one yeah and actually it's still an email him from time to time sometimes i'll come across businesses and he's looked at a lot of different companies and thought about moats and yeah he's someone i have kept in touch with over the past couple of years just a fantastic guy and then uh, we study billionaires. 
I just interviewed Morgan Housel, and he's definitely probably my favorite guest I've ever had on the show. I'm a big fan of his and really enjoyed having the opportunity to chat with him. And this was the first interview in a while where I felt pretty nervous or pretty anxious since I knew we only had 60 minutes to record and we really had to do it in one go. Some of the things I really liked about his book, Same As Ever, is like he talks about how the biggest risk is what nobody sees coming your risk is what you don't see so you know it's an important reminder i think to account for things in life where things are going to happen that you just can't even imagine like covid 9 11 the 1987 flash crash the recent wars i mean it's just a great reminder that we shouldn't be surprised when things completely unexpected happen and he has this saying in his book that it's pretty unsettling that the biggest news story of the next 10 years. So we're in 2024 right now. The biggest news story of the next 10 years is going to be something that nobody is talking about today. And the reason that is, is because that's the way it's always been. And another great example he shares in the book is that zero economists forecasted the Great Depression. And since nobody forecasted it, nobody expected it, no one was prepared for it. So that's one of the reasons like it was so bad. After the great financial crisis and the Fed sort of bailed out the banks, all these people called for hyperinflation and such. And, you know, rates are going to skyrocket. We're going to see hyperinflation. But we actually saw the exact opposite where rates practically went to 0% and inflation in the real economy, at least, didn't really show up. So it was really humbling reading that book and reading about, you know, these forecasters. There's a couple other things I, I thought were worth mentioning here in regards to Morgan's book. He has this chapter on competitive advantages. The chapter is titled Keep Running. And he ties in all these interesting biological sort of lessons where biology encourages like all these species to grow. And then biology punishes you for being big. So I thought that was quite interesting how he ties that into companies. There's this statistic he shared where 40% of all public companies lost their value from 1980 to 2014. So through that period, 40% of public companies ended up going to zero. Again, it's just very humbling in that uh, most companies are doomed to die. I also wanted to mention that uh, I interviewed Chris Mayer twice in 2023. He was probably one of my other favorite guests. And I'm actually chatting with him again next week. And his book titled How Do You Know was probably one of the best books I read personally in 2023. And I know a lot of people probably haven't read that book. Yeah, I've not read it yet. I've not read either. I wanted to... Morgan Housel was called Same as Ever, correct? That's his second book. Psychology of Money was his first. And then Chris Mayer, his first book is 100 Baggers, right? Yeah, he has a handful of books, actually. So he wrote a couple others I personally didn't find quite as interesting. But 100 Baggers, I 100% recommend. I've read that book a handful of times. And then, yeah, How Do You Know? It's a book about general semantics, which is like a philosophical sort of thing. But he takes all these philosophical ideas and applies it to investing. And we talked about that book on the show and it was one of my favorite interviews. Is it kind of a heady philosophical book? Because I think general semantics, I know a little bit about it, but not much. So is it more of a philosophical look at, at investing? Yeah, it's definitely more of a philosophical book to help paint a picture for what the book's about. Kind of the key kind of quote I sort of think of when I think of that book is the map is not the territory. So people like to use these words to explain something, but using these words, they aren't really explaining. They don't really mean anything with what they're saying. 
So it really made me wary of labels like growth stocks, value stocks, the economy, GDP, all these big, broad terms. People use these terms as if they mean something. But uh, I think it's just it just points to a lot of people oversimplify investing and oversimplify the world. I think there's one example I remember from the book that you'd probably appreciate is sometimes investors will value a company based on like the real estate they own. So this company has say 10,000 acres in Florida and all these other states. And then they they just pluck a value on each of these uh you know properties in in all these states. So like the properties in Florida, they might say it's worth however many dollars per square foot and they just like simplify this is how much the Florida real estate is. But in reality, like some of it's like very valuable, some of it's not so valuable. So I think that was a great case in his book where investors can get themselves into trouble by taking these shortcuts and oversimplifying. Obviously, we have to take some sort of shortcuts because it's impossible to know everything is the trick. So he just really opened my eyes to how these terms can really dupe people. Well, even like in value investing, I was just thinking that when you you can use the word value investing and people think we're all on the same page on that. But what Adam Cecil thinks about value investing and what Warren Buffett thinks about value investing are two different things. There might be some similar concepts, but like they're not on the same page. You could have someone that's like a cigar butt investor where they only buy things below liquidation value. And then you have someone that pays for a company like Constellation Software 35 times their earnings and say they're a value investor. So grouping these two people under the same term really doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the map is not the territory. That's a, I like that quote. Interesting. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, say you're on a flight from Nebraska to New York and you've got the opportunity to sit with whatever, a handful of investors that have inspired you. Who would those people be? Living or dead? I mean, maybe not Buffett and Munger, because obviously they've inspired us both, but uh, some other ones. The first, I've already mentioned him and interviewed him twice, but Chris Mayer would probably be on one side of me. I'll, I'll pick like a middle seat. So I have two people next to me. So Chris Mayer, I'd probably put next to me. One reason is I picked up a number of his holdings that he has in his portfolio. So I'd love to pick his brain on that. And I know he's looked at a ton of companies. So I, I know there's stuff that uh, might be more interesting to me because it's a smaller name and it might not fit into his fund because he probably needs to you know, not be a micro cap investor, <laughs> essentially. So I know he's looked at a lot of interesting companies. Now, I know you just did a, a segment on Copart. Is Copart something that he follows? Yeah, he's owned it for a while. And what's also interesting about Chris is he wrote a newsletter and like traveled all over the world. And he's been to all different, I don't know how many countries he's been to, but it's a lot. And I'm sure he'd have some amazing stories to share and just recommendations on places to go. And then on my left side in the theoretical plane, I'd probably want Monish Pabrai there. He's another person where he's just full of ideas. I just admire his ability to look for things and places where no one's really looking. I think Turkey is a good example of that. And I just think he'd be a great person in terms of idea generation and finding things you couldn't even dream that existed. He's got a great book that I love, uh, The Dondo Investor. He's in the William Green's book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. He's the first investor focus. The first chapter is about Monish. And I remember listening to William's book on a plane once. And I love Richer, Wiser, Happier. I think that book is just like a wealth of wisdom in that one. But yeah, I just remember listening to so many of the stories about Monish. And he's such a fascinating character, I think. Yeah, I really like his sort of approach where 
there's a lot of value investors where they buy a decent business they think is like 10 or 20% below intrinsic value. But Monish, he, he's talking about a company that's like 96% discount to liquidation value. <laughs> like he just finds these things that like no one's talking about or no one's even looking at. And like you said, just a very interesting guy. And there's one point that really stuck with me from him that I mentioned on my chat with Kyle yesterday, where ideally you want to find a situation where there's low risk, but high uncertainty. And some investors sort of mix the two up. So low risk means your odds are you're not going to lose money on the bet. But the high uncertainty is, is like what exactly plays out in the future. Wall Street hates uncertainty. They love like, you know, constant, constant earnings. But if things are choppy or things are uncertain or there's just sort of maybe a sketchy part of the business where you don't really know what's going to happen, that's like creates sort of the ideal scenario for an investor. Yeah. I think he calls that like in the Dondo investor, he talks about heads I win, tails I don't lose too much. That's how he tries to stack the odds in his favor. Yeah. Big fan of Monish. Yeah. He's a big cloner too of Warren and Charlie and their partnership. And I think the inspiring thing about Monish, one of the many things, but like he really came to investing kind of later in life. I think I, you know, I don't know what age, but he was reading a one up on Wall Street, picked it up in an airport when he was late twenties, maybe or something like that. So, so we got Chris Mayer, we got Monish on the plane next to you, who you mentioned and somebody else. Those are the two are definitely top of mind. But when I kind of described how I like to invest, usually I just point to Chris Mayer, Charlie Munger, and Nick Sleep are the people I sort of try to invest like. Just a big focus on quality and a big focus on long term compounding. Let's talk a little bit about Nick Sleep. That's a name that a lot of people may not know in our little community. Like we we know who Nick Sleep is, but I forget. I think he's chapter four of William's book, Nick and Zach's Excellent Adventure, it's called. Great, interesting guy. Talk to us a little bit about Nick Sleep and what you've learned from him. Yeah. One of my early episodes on We Study Billionaires was actually talking all about Nick Sleep and it was one of the more popular ones I've done. But William's chapter on Nick Sleep is probably the chapter I've revisited most in that book. And a lot of it's for reasons that aren't investment related, which is sort of counterintuitive. In the mastermind community that I run, occasionally we talk about books that we've read. And I was in Telluride, Colorado with a group and we were in a bookstore in Telluride. And I was walking and I see this book by Robert Persig, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And that's like probably the at least the fifth time I've come across it. Like it's in that chapter on Nick Sleep. It's in Nick Sleep's letters. And it kept coming up. So I'm like, okay, I see it. I finally see the book in person. Like I never go to a bookstore. Uh, these physical bookstores with Amazon nowadays. But I see this book and I'm like, okay, I have to buy it. And then I set up a chat with the community to like see if there was interest. There was a bunch of people interested in reading it because they all know Nick's sleep. And really, it's this this obsession with quality that I just find so interesting. There's this line from Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that William also pulled in his book where it's essentially they say whether you're mending a dress, whether you're sharpening a knife, whether you're creating a podcast, there's a high quality, beautiful way of doing it is the way he puts it. And there's a low quality, let's just say not so good way of doing it. And quality, it's something where you can't really explain what it is but you know it when you see it. And in that book, they talk about how this guy's in a classroom and he has like a high quality paper and a low quality paper. And uh, without saying like, which is good or which is bad, he just has everyone look at it or read through it and just like describe whether, you know, what sort of grade they give it. And everyone essentially agrees what the high quality paper is. 
So it's hard for people to explain what a high quality business is, what a high quality podcast is, but you know it when you see it. And I just, I just find that so interesting. And one of the sort of filters that I've found to be sort of like a mental model to use in life is to like in business, a lot of times people might think, you know, what's going to maximize like profits or what's going to maximize profits or revenue for 2024. But that can be a pretty difficult question and it can actually lead you to making some poor decisions, you know, like short-term decisions. But uh, I think like if I were Nick Sleep, I would ask myself, what is the high quality decision? That can make making your decision making process a lot easier. And I found that really helpful in making decisions, whether it be through the podcast and whatnot. You know, you and I, we can bring on the biggest perma bear and, you know, put like a clickbait title and get a lot of downloads. But is that the high quality decision that's gonna work out for us in long term and like make us a sustainable business? Um, I would say no, personally. That's one of my big takeaways from Nick Sleep, but also just like the focus on quality when it comes to business selection for like my own portfolio. It can be tempting to buy something that's low quality, that's a cigar butt trading well below liquidation value. May stay that way for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could. They could stay that way for a long time. So yeah, I sleep better at night owning high quality businesses and Nick Sleep helped me lean that direction over time. That brings up this idea that he's got a really concentrated portfolio. Can you talk a little bit about that and just how you think about his strategy? Because it does go a little against the grain of what most people would think about and how to structure a portfolio and diversifying. Yeah. So Nick Sleep, for those who aren't familiar, he started out sort of as a Ben Graham style investor and he owned some quality businesses. But over time, I can't remember the exact years he ran. It was around 2000 to 2014, 2001 to 2014. I think it was a 13 year tenure. So when he shut it down, everyone was upset because of all the great returns he had. But he just told them, just put all your money in Berkshire, Amazon and Costco and just don't even touch it. Don't even look at it. And in hindsight, that was a really good decision. And Stig and I talked about this with our community, actually. And, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, what a genius for picking these three companies and, you know, just leaving it alone and look how well it worked out. But I'm sure there's plenty of other very smart people, brilliant minds that could have done the same thing with three other companies and it just turned out terrible. So there's certainly some selection and survivorship bias when you're looking at that. So I do like concentration when it comes to investing for me personally, but three holdings might be going overboard. But it's probably also worth mentioning that Berkshire Hathaway isn't really one company. Yes, it is one stock, but it, it they own hundreds of companies. And then Amazon, they're pretty heavily relying on e-commerce, but they also have AWS. They have all these other bets that in 10 years, they might have all these businesses that don't even exist today. And they also have all these businesses under there. It's like a conglomerate to some degree. Yeah. And then Costco, obviously, it just has their one retail business model. I asked Chris Mayer about his thoughts on concentration. He owns what was 10 stocks. He got a spinoff from Constellation. So I think it's 11 now. I think his general idea is that great ideas are rare. And when he finds them, he really wants to make them count. So when he owns 10 names instead of 30 names, he knows the 10 names really, really well. He's pretty confident that permanent capital impairment in any of the names is pretty, pretty low. The chance of that, that's just because of little to no debt. They produce a lot of cash. Cash flows generally tend to increase year after year. There's diminishing returns on concentration at a certain point. I think at 10 or 11 stocks, you're getting like 80% of the benefits of diversification. So it seems pretty concentrated, but you're still getting a lot of the benefits of diversification. And then Chris, uh, with his portfolio, he owns a lot of serial acquirers. 
And some of these, you know, like Constellation Software, for example, owns well over six or 700 uh, small businesses. So it's not like there's one or two businesses and the whole thing goes down. It's diversified and they're becoming more diversified every single year. So that's quite an interesting aspect where people might overlook how one holding might add a lot more diversification than another holding. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And another interesting stat that I heard listening, you know, researching for our interview is the stat that you and Stig talked about that there's only 4% of equities, and I don't know what the time frame was, outperform treasuries, which kind of blew my mind. You think like equities, you know, outperform treasuries by and large, you know, like, so th- that was pretty wild for me to hear that that stat of only 4% of equities just outperform a simple treasury investment honestly a pretty daunting statistic. I think what I would say to that or why I would justify thinking, you know, I could do well picking individual stocks is one that that studies over like an 80 or 90 year time frame. I mentioned that stat from Morgan Housel, 40% of companies over a 30 34 year period lost all their value. So yeah, the 4% stat when you look out over 80 or 90 years that doesn't really surprise me that much because industries and businesses change so much over that period and you know hopefully with the businesses i own you know i'm owning them at least 5 10 plus years but you know i'm monitoring are the businesses continuing to grow are the kpis like if i own costco for example like are they continuing to open new stores over a year what do their sales per store look like over time and you know once you see those start to decline or sort of stagnate then it might be time to sort of move on and find something else that isn't in the stagnation or in the process of dying. And what I'd also say is that certain stocks are just going to produce better returns over time. So companies that are highly levered, like eventually they're probably going to get themselves into trouble or companies that are in cyclical in- industries, those tend to not have great returns over time. So I think once you filter out you know, some of these characteristics of businesses or characteristics of industries or unprofitable companies, like I'm not going to I just don't really bother with unprofitable companies. And you know those tend to not have great returns over time. So I think once you filter out some of those, the statistic might not be quite as daunting, but uh, I haven't actually ran through the names. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. 
but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Now, that surprised me when I heard that. And like you said, it is a little daunting to think about. I wanted to jump back to Nick's sleep and touch on one idea. He had this idea of like an X number where it was like once he hit a certain number, I don't know exactly what it was in net worth, he was going to shut things down and retire and, and pursue what he called higher pursuits, which was philanthropy for him. And, you know, I, I'm sure he, I think he races cars and things like that. Is that something you think about in your own life? Like, do you have like an X number that once you hit, in my mind, it's like investing is a game, right? And so he just stopped the game once he hit that number to some degree, right? I'm sure, you know, he obviously manages his own portfolio, but like to just stop doing something that you love and are really great at, like, you know, you talked about the Robert Piercing book, you know, he's a high quality investor. Is that something in your own life? Like you think about like, if you were to hit X number, you just stop and go pursue, I don't know, like go help whatever cause you're most interested in. Yeah. I've thought about uh, what my goal is generally as an investor. And I think my answer to that question would be, you know, compound capital at a high rate without, you know, blowing up the whole thing. So like without taking excess risk. So like achieve as high as returns I can without, you know, experiencing substantial downside. So protecting for the downside as well. And I kind of picked that up from Chris Mayer. And then another sort of goal that ties into that is like, you know, I want to become financially independent. And your point about uh, you know, hitting that number, you know, I don't really have a number in terms of once I hit this point, I'm, I'm financially independent. It's like generally life situations just changes so much. You know, I'm still in my 20s right now and who knows what my life or priorities are going to be when I'm 35 or 40. And I think it's similar to when I was an actuary where like, you know, I wasn't really spending 
a ton of money or buying things I didn't really need. Those decisions really set me up to transition to TIP because you know it allowed me to take an initial pay cut and it allowed me to take the risk of you know trying a whole new field. Whereas if I was strapped to like a giant mortgage and a giant car payment, like that would have been impossible to do. So that's the way I sort of think about it is just like you know, try and put myself in a better financial position to where I have the optionality to pursue the sort of things I want. Uh, Nick Sleep discovered what he wanted to pursue after his investing journey was over. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Amazing for him to have the, you know, the willingness to venture into something new once his identity was like this great investor. So I have no idea, honestly, what my life's going to look like five or 10 years from now. You know, hopefully I'm in a position where just being a host of TIP has just opened me up to just all these different opportunities of meeting various people, of being introduced to all these different types of investors. So you, you really never know where the world is going to lead you. So I'm reminded of the, the Steve Jobs quote of, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You, you can only do it looking backwards. And I absolutely love that because even in joining TIP, I could have never imagined being in the position I'm in now. But you know, looking back, it totally makes sense where you know, now I do We Study Billionaires. Now I help run an investment community. And it's just opened up more and more opportunities for me. And it also reminds me of Morgan Housel, the quote I mentioned, where the biggest event over the next 10 years is going to be something you can't even imagine. I'm sure there's going to be something that happens within the next few years where I just can't even imagine it. And then in hindsight, just going to look you know so obvious because of that hindsight bias. So you mentioned the mastermind community, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit. I know a little bit about it, but I wanted to learn more about what you and Kyle are up to. Wanted to hear about the impetus for it and just how it's been going so far for you. So Stig and I, in 2023, we put together these free events in Omaha in 2023 during the Berkshire weekend. And we had room for, I don't know, something like 150 people each time. It, it depends what, what location we were at. We had a number of free events just for people in the TIP audience to come hang out with us and have some fun and just socialize with the, the whole TIP community. And as I was organizing this, getting emails, getting constant messages from people, I was just really pretty quickly, like Stig and I talked about it like in November. So like six months before Omaha. And then like, I don't know if it's by like December or January, I realized like, hey, if we let any more people sign up for this, we're literally not going to have room for people to join us. And I don't, the last thing I want is like just a total madhouse. So I just like shut down the form, like no one else can sign up because we already have like 250 people who are interested. You know, if two thirds of them show up, we're pretty much full. So I got to thinking, why are so many people wanting to attend this live event that we're hosting? You know, there's like so much interest. Like usually you think like, oh, people hear about it in Omaha and they just go and show up. But it was like five or six months beforehand, like people are, reaching out to me constantly like, Hey, are you going to let us attend this event? And it really got me thinking, why is that happening? And I sort of came to the conclusion that like people aren't just going to Omaha just to see Buffett and Munger and then call it a weekend. They're really wanting to get to know and network with people who are like-minded to them. And when I go back to when I was a listener of the show, you know, I sort of had these internal conversations like listening to Preston and Stig and listening to their uh, mastermind discussions like pitching stocks. But I never got to like I would try to talk about that with my friends, but you know, it, it just never clicked with them. They just weren't interested in it. They don't really understand it. And it, it's just if you're not interested in it, you're not interested in it. It's, that's just the way it is. So that's why people were so interested in, you know, getting together and having that opportunity to talk with 
like-minded people. And plus, so many of these people are from outside the US. Like I just had someone email me the other day that's coming from Australia to come to Omaha. And people, you know, I know come from Asia, Europe, like everywhere in the world. So I'm like, okay, what if we created something where we create a place that people can connect with like-minded investors, but it's not just one week into the year, it's the entire year. So that was really the start of the TIP mastermind community. And we ended up launching it the month of our events. So we could tell people to talk about it to people at the events. And then uh, I ended up meeting some of the people that joined right away in Omaha, which was quite interesting where I already met like 10 or 15 people that were already joined our community uh, just two weeks after launching it. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's really a place to network with like-minded people online. A lot of people hop on calls one-on-one. We have around 100 members right now, and we plan on capping it at 150. And it's a place to share stock ideas, get new ideas from others. We have people apply to join. So really, there's a filter that goes through where you we have to make sure you're a like-minded person. You kind of think pretty similar in terms of investing, You know, trying to buy something for less than it's worth, understanding moats, understanding intrinsic value, just basic things like that. And really, it's a wide range of people. Like Some people are earlier on in their journey. Some people are work in the investment industry. And then people also seem to really like... Uh, we bring in special guests that have been on the podcast. So we've had Chris Mayer join us, Gotham Bade, Ian Castle, Tobias Carlisle. Yeah. So we have various people come in and and chat with us. And then we also do educational type stuff. Kyle does some write-ups. And then we're going to be hosting two live events a year specific for the community. So we'll be doing two social hours in Omaha in May. And then I plan on also hosting a a live event in New York City in the fall. So that was the impetus and kind of what we're up to. That's awesome. Have you gotten any feedback from members and like some of the benefits, like just what the feedback is and benefits like that they talk about? Yeah. So since the community offers sort of a lot of different value, you know, values in the eye, I've kind of learned uh, over time that values in the eye of the beholder, uh, what one person sees valuable, another person doesn't see any value in it at all. So the three main benefits I sort of see is just having a network to run ideas by or a network to sort of uh, expose yourself to. Online, there's people constantly posting different things or just sharing books or reading articles they read. So just being a part of that network really is invaluable. It just exposes you to a lot of serendipity of you never know what sort of connection is going to pop up or maybe you're traveling to a city and you know a person in the community that lives there. So you you get access to just, just this amazing network. A lot of them are entrepreneurs or they've sold businesses. So just amazing people in general, not just like having that investment mindset, but they have a lot of life experiences that, in my opinion, is just invaluable. And then um, a lot of people join just to get new stock ideas or to share their ideas with others. It's, it, this definitely isn't an investment service. So I don't encourage anyone to join just to like, hey, go and buy the stock. Really, it's an, it can be a place for idea generation. People also really seem to like the special guests that we bring in. So just being able to ask just these experts that you wouldn't otherwise have access to seems to be really valuable and people really like to. So tell me a little bit about like what it costs, how often you guys meet, um, a little bit about how it's structured. Yeah, right now the cost is one ninety seven a month, or multiply that ten for the yearly, so nineteen seventy for the year. Got to do a live math here, and then um, yeah, so that's the cost. We try to do a live Zoom event every week. The time of day 
we do that just depends on, you know, we're working with various people's schedules. We do social hours and work with people's schedules. So generally every week, uh, a lot of times we do more than one a week. And then all those get recorded because people, our members just live busy lives. So we record everything, you know, not everyone can sit in at a specific time with this Q and A. So it's also nice because we're building a huge backlog of content for the community. And, you know, someone joins today, they have access to every single recording we've done since April, 2023. So it's been close to a year. And then, uh, yeah, so online, we're meeting once a week, essentially. And then live events, you get access to Omaha and New York City if you're interested in meeting up in person. And one of the other things I wanted to mention about Omaha in 2023 is it just felt like since there were so many people there, I really didn't know who was showing up generally. I found that the conversations were just really surface level for me personally. So it's like I really didn't get to really know people. And I'm just talking to so many people as well, like 50 plus people you know, introducing themselves. So it's hard to get past that sort of surface level. And when you have a s- small community where 30 of the 100 members are going to Omaha, like you know who's going to be going. You can see we have like a registration list so you can see who's going to be going and you're like okay i want to talk to these three people i want to get insights from this person on this company so it really is a an amazing way to get past the surface level and really build those deeper relationships which is for me personally just like the relationships part of being a part of this has just been amazing just meeting so many amazing people and yeah like now i know for example like whenever i go to new york city i have plenty of friends to go and see and people to go hang out with and for me i that just is a huge huge benefit it sounds like a really great thing like what Kyle had mentioned like in our day-to-day lives there's not that many people that really want to talk about what we're into what whatever it is you know podcasting or investing you know it's kind of a niche topic and so it's really hard to find a community so it sounds like an awesome thing to be a part of you had I want to switch gears you had mentioned got him bade and that he was part of the mastermind community. I did a Twitter thread, I think actually by your suggestion, that did really well. It was one of my best performing threads. And I know that you did a series on his book, Joys of Compounding, that was was one of your best performing series. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Joys of Compounding. I know it's an important book for you. What do you think it is? It just strikes a chord about that book with listeners and readers. There's a funny story kind of behind that book. I talk with various people on Twitter. I was DMing compounding quality. And I don't know if I asked him for book recommendations or what, but he must have just messaged me and said, Hey, by the way, if you haven't read The Joys of Compounding, I highly recommend it. He said it was as good as William's book. And when I heard that, I was just like, there's no way. Like, I was pretty skeptical. I bought the book. And honestly, this, like, right when I started reading it, I was just like blown away. Shortly after I had a meeting with Stig and I was talking to Stig, I was like, I've been doing these book reviews and each book has been like one episode, like one one hour episode. And I'm going through this book. I'm like, I can't do all this in one episode. I'm like, I'm telling Stig, I could probably do five or six episodes on this one book. And Stig was like, wow, like he had never read the book. And he was like, if that's true, then go ahead, do that. So I'm pretty sure I did a five-part series that was in the first half of 2023, sort of April, May timeframe. Yeah. So I reviewed the book. And the reason I think it sort of struck a chord is that I think it really encapsulates everything the value investing community stands for and everything that TIP stands for and what we're all about. You know, he just pulled all these key lessons for, you know, just like lifelong learning, like what's most important when it comes to value investing. Like a lot of these ideas weren't like something he came up with. Like he had 
read just countless books, like countless books. He's read, you know, everything Buffett talks about. He read Buffett shareholder letters. He, he went through everything and he just put together all together in one book. And, uh, you know, half of it, I would say is just like general things with regards to life, like how to, you know, approach life in a way that's like honorable and ethical. And I just thought that was so interesting and just lifelong learning. A lot of it also is about investing too. And each chapter is sort of standalone to some degree because it's all just about one sort of topic. Like there's a chapter on incentives that I've looked back on so many times and he pulls in all these amazing quotes in regards to what he's talking about. And I've just never found one resource that's quite like it and never really came across anything that really hits on all the value investing topics. It's what we've talked about for years. And he just put it all into one resource. And I love the book personally. Yeah, I do too. You had a chance to interview him. What was that like? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I had him on the show twice, actually. Uh, He released his second book, The Making of a Value Investor, late 2023. So I brought him on for that too. But really, from chatting with him and reading his book, some of the big takeaways for me was just, again, the appreciation for high quality businesses and why they work. One of the most difficult parts of investing is the qualitative aspects. Like as a numbers guy, I sort of got attracted to investing because of the numbers. But really what makes it sort of interesting is these qualitative aspects, things like people, culture, industry dynamics, like competitive dynamics, just how businesses fit into the bigger picture of the world. And he really opened my eyes up to why and how people tend to underestimate the value of high quality businesses and people can get fixated on the numbers. They get fixated on a PE ratio or whatnot without understanding the big picture of where a company is heading over the long run. And he talks about uh, Terry Smith is like a very popular quality investor. And he talks about uh, how people get fixated on these PE ratios. But and I think it's another way some people can get duped into buying lower quality businesses and earning lower returns as a result of it. And when you look zoom out over like a 10 plus year time horizon and you have a great business, it doesn't really matter if you bought it at a multiple of 20 or 40. All that matters really is that you bought it. And I also liked how Gotham talked about how he talked about this concept of quality increasing your margin of safety because great businesses increase their intrinsic value over time. So, you know, with each passing day, the intrinsic value is going up over time, essentially because the earnings are continued to march upward. And I also loved that he mentioned the example of Ben Graham. He was a cigar butt investor. He's that's what he's known for, but he made the majority of his money owning Geico stock. It's just, just like so ironic how this this one business, he happened to buy it. And I can't remember exactly why he ended up holding on to it uh, for like 30, 40 years, but that made him more money than by far than anything else. That's where he made the majority of his money. And Ben Graham, he talks a lot about this idea of mean reversion. Great companies eventually become average and poor companies eventually become average. So things sort of mean revert over time. And Gotham shared this study in his book that's really stuck with me where it was from Credit Suisse. And essentially, it showed that over successive five-year periods, it ends up that great businesses tend to remain great and poor businesses tend to remain poor. And it kind of gave me the peace of mind of, okay, maybe when you reference that 4% study over a 90-year period, maybe a great business turns into a zero. But over over these sort of shorter timeframes that we can really sort of deal with and grapple with, like I don't know what a business is going to look like 50 plus years in the future, but I can operate in sort of a 3 to 5-year time horizon and then continually reassess. 
is a sort sort of the way I view it. Gotham also helped me appreciate quality in a business and the power that holds for investors. Yeah, it's a great book. Joys of Compounding and Richer, Wiser, Happier are two of my favorites that uh, I think everybody should own and everybody could reread every year and get some value out of it. Something new, you know, that, yeah, it's just, there's two great books. I wanted to kind of wrap up here and ask you, we talked about Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, and then his, his second book, Same as Ever. My favorite chapter of Psychology of Money is called Confessions where we get a peek into how like Morgan runs his own financial life and look under the hood of like his portfolio. There's a quote I think that's attributed to Monish Prabhai that goes along the lines of, I don't want to hear what you think. I want to know what's in your portfolio. Show me your portfolio. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and hear about your own portfolio and how you've got it structured. Yeah. So one of my bigger holdings is actually Bitcoin, which I never talk about on the show. And you and I were talking, I, I kind of went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole in 2020, read the Bitcoin standard, saw the transition Preston was making with MTIP. And yes, ever since 2020, I've just bought it and held it and added to it over time. You know, It's a long-term bet for me and I don't really care too much what it does in the short term or whether an ETF is going to dramatically increase the price or right now it's falling in light of the ETF. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's just a long-term holding and you know, it's gone up and become a bigger part of my portfolio. Personally, what I find a lot more interesting right now is just talking about and researching all these individual companies and talking about stock investing on the podcast. So right now, I only own six individual stocks. The most recent one I actually covered on the show with Kyle was Dino Polska, the grocer out of Poland. So we have an episode on that if anyone wants to learn more about it. And then uh, we are actually just recorded about Evolution AB. That's one of my other bigger stock holdings. That company's out of Sweden, really growing quite fast. And it's quite an interesting name. And I think it has a lot of room to run. And and what do they do? Tell me a little bit more about Evolution AB. Yeah. Usually I just refer to them as Evolution. But if you look it up, Evolution AB is what they go under. And there's the main ticker is EVO. That's the one I own on Interactive Brokers. But then there's also a ADR. So you can, I think you can get access to it on a regular investment account. Uh, it's EVVTY, I think is the ticker on that. But Evolution essentially is a... They develop online games. So like live games. So they're capitalizing on this trend from land-based casinos to online. So right now, land-based casinos are sort of in a decline. And globally, the online casino market is just... It's in a structural growth trend. I think from 2018 to 2022, that market's grown by 21% per year. And Evolution, in some of those years, has grown by over 50% their revenue. And uh, what they specialize in is live casinos. So you can think about Blackjack or Roulette, where you actually have a live dealer. And People get online and they see the live dealer. And it's really a difficult business model for a lot of these casinos or other operators to get in because scale is so, so important. It's so costly to set up these tables and reach the scale. And that evolution is what they've specialized in. And there's really no other strong competitors that there are a lot of competitors, but there's no one that operates at the scale they do or has just the vast amount of games that they do. Just in 2023 alone, they've developed over 100 games. So they they create these new games. And um, another tailwind they sort of have behind their back is the regulation of iGaming globally. So as more and more of these countries 
develop regulations. The market continues to mature and continue to grow. Europe is their mature market. Uh, I believe they're still growing in the teens in Europe. But when you look at Asia and Latin America, the growth is like really strong for evolution. So one of the things I like about it is that it's global and they have a strong market position in what they do and it's global and they're growing in all these different markets. Like I don't know which markets they're going to do the best in over the next five, 10 years, but I can see like overall big picture, like they're capturing a lot of this massive market. Yeah. Kyle and I will have an episode going out actually in early February on this company. If anyone's interested in learning more, we we did a hour plus long deep dive on it. And then uh, back to my portfolio, I also own uh, some index funds in cash because I'd like to bring my individual holdings close to 10, hopefully in, within the next year or two, just kind of gradually making my way towards that number. Kind of cloning Chris Mayer a little bit. Yeah. A, a number I can sort of grapple with in terms of actually knowing the companies and tracking them, you know, but not too much where it becomes overwhelming and I'm kind of losing the benefits of adding more. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. So percentage wise, how would you break it down? I'm sure if you got into Bitcoin whenever that's become a bigger part of your portfolio, but how do you think about breaking it down in term percentage wise, individual stocks, Bitcoin index funds? Yeah, honestly, I'd rather not share percentages. Like the Bitcoin's grown to be a sizable part, but um, you know, I think of it more in terms of my cost basis. And I'm a big fan of just letting winners run. So you know, Bitcoin might stagnate for quite some time, or it might come down. And then uh, as I continue to save more and more money, you know, depending on where things move and how things change, then I can allocate. You know, where I'm allocating new cash accordingly to. I wanted to touch a little bit on volatility, not Bitcoin only. Bitcoin's obviously volatile, but also individual stocks. Like, how do you deal with that from like a psychological standpoint? It's pretty tough weathering some of those ups and downs. Is it a matter of conviction for you, or how do you deal with the volatility? Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin's actually a great example for thinking about volatility, just because it's the most volatile thing people know about, unless they've got into very speculative things that, you know, like a lot of growth stocks, a lot of altcoins type stuff. But one of the realizations I've sort of come to in recent years is that the market price is not driven by the average person participating in that market. For example, in Bitcoin, over 70 or 75% of the coins haven't moved in the past year, which tells me the majority of people that own Bitcoin think it's going to be a higher price one, two, three, four years into the future. But if you have an FTX type player coming in, it sort of makes you realize that just a few players in a market can really move the price like significantly. Like you could say FTX alone brought it from 30 or 40 to below 20, just like that. And then there's contagion as well, where other players get liquidated. There's all these leveraged traders. And I think it, it also ties into the point that a market has like an infinite number of different types of investors that are buying and selling for totally different reasons. So I think it's really important for me personally to know why I'm buying it, like what my time horizon is and what my thesis is in owning that. And uh, you can think about like an example like Berkshire Hathaway, where the average person owning Berkshire might say it's undervalued. But people don't buy and sell just based on whether it's undervalued or overvalued. Like some people might be selling it to go and buy a home where they aren't even looking at the intrinsic value or the market value of it. They need cash. They need to sell and to do that. Some investors might sell it because they found a better opportunity. They know Berkshire is undervalued, but maybe they go and find another company that's more undervalued. 
So just just that realization that there's so many different players in the market. There's so many short-term people that think short-term or just think irrationally. It points to like the market's a voting machine in the short-term and the weighing machine in the long-term. So, you know, really what to me, like I care about the fundamentals and like the price is really noise for the most part in the short-term, unless your thesis is of course busted and whatever it is you own. So I think the best way to manage volatility is definitely understanding what you own, why you own it, and then adjust your position size accordingly. If you can't sleep at night, then that might be an indication you might need to scale back on a holding, right? Yeah, exactly. There's something wrong in terms of your understanding of it, why it is you own it, and maybe your position size isn't you know, in line with your understanding of it. So once something goes into your portfolio, whether it's Bitcoin or these individual stocks, equities that you own, is it pretty much your mindset? It's a long-term hold? Yeah. I mean, I used to, like, I remember buying some of the big tech names during the drawdown in 22. But once those reverted back, I ended up allocating them to uh, things I thought were better opportunities. But yeah, ideally, when I own something, I'm hopefully going to own it for at least three or five years plus, and then sort of reevaluate over time, give it sort of a leash to, you know, all companies go through some growing pains and, you know, give them a chance to come back. But yeah, definitely uh, want those longer term plays because I think that's where a lot of the gains are going to be for my portfolio. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think it's interesting to our listeners to just hear individually like how you personally invest and appreciate you sharing that. So this is a good place to put a pin in things. I really appreciate your time. Was there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you maybe wanted to mention? I don't think so. We hit on a lot. Before we sign off, how can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, maybe learn about the mastermind community, things like that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Clay underscore Fink is my username, F-I-N-C-K. The podcast is We Study Billionaires. Many listeners probably know what that is. And then uh, the mastermind community, you can just search TIP mastermind community on Google or uh, go to theinvestorspodcast.com slash mastermind. Awesome. Clay, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it and had a fun time. Thanks, Patrick. Really enjoyed it. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Millennial Investing on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on our episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.